All right, let's take our Bibles and turn to Psalm 145. Now, what we're going to do tonight over the next few minutes is look at six psalms, six of them. Um, so listen fast. <laughs> the message of Psalm 145, in fact, Psalms 145 through uh, 150, the last six psalms in the book of Psalms, is, is very similar. Um, as, you're, as you're turning there, let, let, let's think about the teaching of these six psalms. Um, if, if I ask you, what is the most often repeated commandment in the scripture? What would be your response? It's, it's praise the Lord. And, and the interesting thing about that is, I don't know that we always even think about praise the Lord as a command. In a way that has sort of corrupted um, how we understand praise the Lord, it's become an expression. Something that we might say in response to something positive. It's, it's even, even used in what I think is a, sort of a blasphemous way of uh, cheaply but insincerely celebrating something that happened in the mind usually of the person who speaks it coincidentally in someone's life. But over and over and over again, the Bible commands praise the Lord. In fact, in Psalm 148, 149, and 150 alone, 31 times the Bible says, in some shape, form, or fashion, praise the Lord. It's what we're commanded to do. We are charged to praise the Lord. So let's think for a minute before we turn here about what this means. For those of you who delight in filling in blanks, uh, here we go. This is, that's such a new experience for me here with the outlines and the blanks. And it's, it, I'm fascinating, fascinated at the psychology behind the need to fill the blanks. But I, I, I like it. It's good. I'll poke fun at you from time to time, but I think it's a healthy practice. What does it mean to praise the Lord? Well, first of all, it means to look at, at God, to look at Him. By look at Him, I, I mean look at Him as He has revealed Himself in our context in the Scripture. Look until we see some aspect of His glory that transcends the corrupt things that distract us the things that call for our attention right now. Look and continue to look until you see His glory, glory that produces in us an awe-filled joy, a sense of, of, of worship, a, a joy that we can't help but express in praise. It, it means, to praise the Lord means to look at Jesus. It means to look at Him. And as you look at Him, you will worship. The first sermon I ever preached here was from Isaiah 6. That, that passage is perhaps the best picture in the Bible of what worship really looks like. Isaiah said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And, and he, he just begins to, to respond to that. The way he is moved by the glory of God before him is worship. He says, woe is me, God is holy. There's the angelic song of praise in that particular passage. God says, 
Who will go for us? And whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, sign me up. I'm on board. All of the elements of worship can be seen in Isaiah's experience as he responds to the glory of God. Praising the Lord begins by looking at him. That may be a very simplistic way of approaching the idea of praising the Lord, but that's really what it's all about. There will be times when you look at the Lord and what you see superficially because of your condition at the moment spiritually or the distraction that you're under will, will not be so impressive to you that it, that it will move you to worship. What do you do then? You continue to look until you see that aspect of his glory that, that moves you, that turns your heart, that, that comforts you, that grabs your attention. Uh, first, it means to look at him. Second, it means to delight in his glory. All of these sort of run together. But there should be something of the, of the Lord's character that makes your heart leap with joy. We are to delight in who God is. And I think really understanding who he is leads us to delight in who he is. Uh, when crazy, terrible things happen, this week's had a little of that, you delight in the providence of God over our life. That he is good. The judge of all the earth always does what is right. Even when we can't see his hand, even when we don't understand what it is that he intends to accomplish, he's always at work in our life. We delight in his glory. And then thirdly, we worship him. I know of no other way to summarize this last part. When, when, as we delight in God, because of the glory we behold, we will naturally be moved to express ourselves in worship. Whether it's in a song or a changed life or a call to service, some other act of faithfulness, your response to delighting in God will necessarily be worship. So let's work through these six psalms very quickly. And uh, I want us to highlight the unique parts of each psalm and what they contribute to our understanding of of worship and what it means to praise the Lord. Psalm 145 is the end of that section we've been talking about that's about private devotions. And what we've done in dealing with Psalm, the last several psalms is we've talked about David's private devotional life and how it provides for us an example. Psalm 145 is the last one of those psalms. It's, it's really in something of a different section than Psalm 146 through 150, but it's, a, it's the transitional psalm. It's David's personal praise life. It's David before God celebrating the faithfulness of God. In verse 1 of Psalm 145, the Bible says, I exalt you, my God the King, and praise your name forever and ever. I will praise you every day. I will honor your name forever and ever. Yahweh is great and is highly praised. His greatness is unsearchable. In verse 8, the Bible says, The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and great in faithful love. The Lord is good to everyone. His compassion rests on all he has made. In verses 14 and following, the Bible says, The Lord helps all who fall. He raises up all who are oppressed. All eyes look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. In verse 21, the Bible says, My mouth will declare Yahweh's praise. Let every living thing praise His holy name forever and ever. 
Psalm 145, David praises the Lord for his grace and for his compassion. Privately, personally, David had experienced the grace and the compassion of God. And now, privately, devotionally, David celebrates the grace and the compassion of God. Now, here is a man who was a king. And on top of being a king, he was a great king. And yet, in light of the greatness of God, David still regards himself in a lowly way. And he celebrates the faithfulness of God, the compassion of God, in extending the hand of grace to David in his greatest times of need. God is good, isn't he? Listen again. I think verses 8 and 9 really contain the heart of David's celebration. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and great in faithful love. The Lord is good to everyone. His compassion rests on all he has made. Verses 10 through 13 celebrate the power of God. All you've made will thank you, Lord. The godly will praise you. They will speak of the glory of your kingdom and will declare your might, informing all people of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your rule is for all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and gracious in all his actions. Given the greatness of God, the power that God holds in his hand, it is an astonishing thing that he would be compassionate and gracious to a lowly people like us. And yet that's precisely what God chooses to do. There's, there's some commentary on Psalm 145 that's pretty well done that contends that Psalm 145 is set in such a way as to suggest that it was David's favorite psalm. The prescript in the language suggests that, that it was David's favorite psalm. It was a psalm of David for David. It was, in essence, David's favorite hymn. If you think about David's life, it makes sense that David would choose as his favorite song, a song about grace and compassion. He'd experienced it in, in so many ways. And, and if, if we continue in personalizing these psalms of David from his private devotional life, I would challenge you to think about your own experience. Those of you who have been touched by the gospel, those of you who know Christ as the Savior of your life, God has regarded us in our lowly estate. Graciously, compassionately, God has looked upon us with remarkable favor. That ought to move us to worship. You see what we're doing here? We are looking at him. And we're looking until we catch that aspect of his character, of his glory, that moves us to delight in him and then it expresses itself in worship. If you think back across your life at how undeserving you are of God's love and favor, it won't take long to be enamored with the grace and the mercy of God who is in heaven. And you will be moved to worship him in spirit and in truth. Psalm 146 is uh, much like Psalm 145. There's only uh, slightly different um, points of emphasis in these psalms one to the next in psalm 146 the psalmist praises the lord for his faithfulness 
Faithfulness was the best word that I could come up with to describe what is described in Psalm 146. The word that I would have preferred using would be his constancy, that he is steady, that he does not change, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. I, I, don't, I don't know if delighting in that attribute of God's character is unique to me because of my background or if it's a part of who God is that everyone rejoices in. But it is incredibly comforting to me to know that in this topsy-turvy, tumultuous world, when sometimes the people we love best prove unfaithful, when sometimes the people we love best we prove to be unfaithful to because we're sinners just like they are, when, you, when there's not a whole lot in this world you can rely on, it is incredibly comforting to know that in him there is no variation, no shadow of turning. He is our strength and our stay, the anchor for our soul. He always has been and he always will be perfect in his righteousness, a thousand percent in his faithfulness toward us. Look at a few verses from Psalm 146. Verse 1 says, Hallelujah. My soul, praise the Lord. Does your translation say that? Yes? I don't know why it does. And frankly, I don't know why mine does. Do you know what the, you know what the Hebrew word for praise the Lord is? Hallelujah. So it's a little silly that you'd have hallelujah, which is not an English word. It's a transliteration of a Hebrew word. That's all it is. That's where hallelujah comes from. And then in the next verse, you translate the same terminology as praise the Lord. I guess they're just trying to mix it up for us. Um, there's, there's an artistic flair to that. But I'm not sure why you translate praise the Lord, hallelujah, in some places and praise the Lord in other places. But I want you to know that that's what hallelujah means. Craig's has it right, typically, typically. So verse 1 says, hallelujah, praise the Lord. And verse 2, I will praise the Lord all of my life. I will sing to my God as long as I live. Here, here's, I think, if you're looking for key passages in each Psalm 3 and 4, is it here. Don't trust in nobles and man who cannot save. When his breath leaves him, he returns to the ground. On that day, his plans die. I wonder if a part of, of what moves David so to worship the psalmist in general, David or another psalmist, and it's unclear here, is just the thought of his own frailty. No, no, no earthly king can sustain you. I get, I get, a, always get a little concerned around election time. And listen, elections are important. You need to go and you need to vote and you need to be participants in the process and all of that. It's an important part of who we are. But when I, I hear people who act and speak as though they will live or die based on which party holds the Oval Office, I'm just a little concerned at that. You know what I mean? We ultimately live and die because by the fact that Jesus is on the throne. It's not presidents that make us who we are. It's the king of kings. 
And so rest in that. Rest in that. And participate and involve yourself. And we want godly people and elected officers and all of those things. That's a great, 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 great thing. Make sure you always keep that in balance. You cannot ultimately trust in princes and nobles, the Bible says here. Ultimately, breath leaves them and they return to the ground. On that day, those plans cease. But we are members of an everlasting kingdom with an everlasting king. He has a 100% approval rating in his kingdom. He has always been in charge, and he always will be in charge. And his opinions will not vary based on the, on the latest opinion poll. The same yesterday, today, and forever. That's what's being celebrated here in Psalm 146. In verse 5, the Bible says, Happy is the one whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. He remains faithful forever, executing justice for the exploited and giving food to the hungry. The Lord frees prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those oppressed. The Lord loves the righteous. In verse 10, the psalmist says, The Lord reigns forever. Zion, your God, reigns for all generations. Hallelujah. Or praise the Lord. The Psalm 146 praises the Lord for his faithfulness. Psalm 147 praises the Lord for his restoration. Um, most believe that this is a psalm that celebrates the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. This is a post-exilic or after-the-exile psalm written specifically to celebrate God rebuilding the city, bringing Israel back, delivering them from their Babylonian captivity, resettling them in the city. Now the city is reconstituted and reconstructed, and here is a psalm that can be sung to celebrate the restoration of the city. And that's probably the case. But it's also a psalm that can be sung in celebration of any act of God's restorative uh, power, any act of restoration that God has worked behind. Look at verses 2 through 6. Those are the key verses in Psalm 147. The Bible says, The Lord rebuilds Jerusalem. He gathers Israel's exiled people. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He counts the number of the stars. He gives names to all of them. Our Lord is great, vast in power. His understanding is infinite. The Lord helps the afflicted, but brings the wicked to the ground. He's in charge, and he has restored us. For the people of Israel, that means God has kept his promise. He carried them into captivity on the promise that he'd bring them back. And indeed, he did. He made a promise to a stubborn people who at the time didn't believe the promise was even necessary. I was reading last night in the book of Ezekiel. That's where my chronological Bible reading is, for those of you who are still reading along. And Ezekiel is preaching of the judgment of God in uh, the, 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 the valley in Babylon, and he's trying to convince them this is the judgment of God. The mind of the people was, we won't be here long. This is a political thing. We'll quickly go back and resettle in Jerusalem. And, and Ezekiel's saying, no, you're going to be here 70 years. This is God's judgment. Not only are you going to be here 70 years, but God is actively working judgment against Jerusalem. Even while we're not there, there are more people coming. 
the exile is not over. It's only going to get worse before it ever gets better. And God, in that setting, to a stubborn, bullheaded people, issues the promise that after this period has ended, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to resettle you. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to purge you of idolatry. Now, think about that for a moment. There's lots of issues in the nation of Israel today. If you go there, there is great immorality. But one issue that has not been named, a problem that has not been experienced in the nation of Israel since about A.D. 586, when God took Israel out and said, I'm going to deal with this idolatry business, is the problem of idolatry. You'll find all kinds of issues, but you won't find idolatry there. Here, Psalm 147 celebrates the fact that God has been faithful to keep his promises, even when there was great doubt in the heart of his people that his promises were true. Verse 12 says, exalt the Lord, Jerusalem, praise your God, Zion. It's a a word of warning. It's a clarion call that all of Israel would worship God for the faithfulness that he's shown them. In verses 19 and 20, the Bible says he declares his word to Jacob, that is to Israel, his statutes and judgments to Israel. He's not done this for any nation. They don't know his judgments. Hallelujah. God has done something unique in the people of God, restoring us in spite of our rebellion. It's it's not a great leap for us to understand the implications of that statement for, for ourselves. God has been pleased to restore us in spite of our rebellion, in spite of what we've done, in spite of what's on our resume. God has been faithful to work restoration in our lives. It really is an incredible thing. There there are many of us who are real-life trophies of God's grace, who were, from an earthly perspective, bound for prison or an early death, at the very least, a disgraceful life, and yet God has been pleased to restore the years the locusts have taken away, to to make something beautiful out of what was once an absolute mess. God is still very much in the business of working restoration through his power and reflecting on the restoration that God has been pleased to grant each of us. We ought to be moved to worship him in spirit and truth. Things get a little simpler in Psalm 148, 149, and 150. One of the reasons we're looking at these six psalms together is that they're very straightforward. Uh, There's not a ton of exposition that needs to be done for us to all understand very clearly what is being communicated in these psalms. But the last three are the simplest of them all. Here, in, in Psalm 148, All creation is to praise the Lord. The psalmist says, let all creation praise God. In verse 1, the Bible says again, hallelujah. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord. For he commanded and they were created. He set them in position forever and ever. He gave an order that will never pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, all sea monsters and ocean depths, lightning and hail, snow and cloud, powerful wind that executes his command, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, 
creatures that crawl and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all judges of the earth, young men as well as young women, old and young together. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty covers heaven and earth. He has raised up a horn for his people, resulting in praise to all his godly ones, to the Israelites, the people close to him. Hallelujah, hallelujah. In this psalm alone, 11 times the psalmist commands, praise the Lord. In fact, he commands of the creatures of the earth that they would praise the Lord. The creation itself is to give worship to the God who made us even as we are. Let all creation praise the Lord. In Psalm 149, uh, there's very little difference, but here uh, it is uh, the height of God's creation that is called upon to worship. That is the people of God. Let all his people or all the people of God praise the Lord is the message of Psalm 149. Verse 1 says, Hallelujah. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel celebrate its maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing and make music to him with tambourine and lyre. For Yahweh takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. I, I, I just want to pause there and I want you to think about a simple statement that's just made there. Yahweh takes pleasure in his people. The idea is that God takes pleasure in his people's worship of him. When you worship God, God takes pleasure in your worship. That's a remarkable thing. And I, I don't know that we think about that. Certainly, we don't have anything to contribute to God or to the character of God. He's not needy in heaven. But it's special to think about the fact that our worship brings a smile to the heart of, of our God. He takes pleasure in his people. Verse 5 says, let the godly celebrate in triumphal glory. Let them shout for joy on their beds. Let the exultation of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands, inflicting vengeance on the nations and punishment on the people. Verse 9 closes the psalm with hallelujah. And so seven more times, we are instructed in Psalm 149 to praise the Lord. In Psalm 150, just in case something was missed, the psalmist says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. No one is accepted. Everyone is responsible for praising the Lord. Verse 1 begins, hallelujah. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his powerful acts. Praise him for his abundant greatness. Praise him with trumpet blast. Praise him with harp and lyre. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with flute and strings. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Praise him with clashing cymbals. Let everything that breathes praise the Lord. Hallelujah. In all kinds of ways psalmist wasn't a Baptist. He says, dance and praise the Lord, you know. <laughs> I think that old saying is more about ability than a prohibition in the scripture. We just don't have the ability to dance very well as Baptists. Maybe that's the issue. With, with cymbals, clanging cymbals, loud cymbals, strings and drums and tambourines and various other instruments, bring, bring the whole band and praise the Lord together. Celebrate who he is and 
what it is that he's done. He is a remarkable God, worthy of all worship and praise. So the next time that you come to church on Sunday morning and you're feeling a little sour, or maybe you got up on the wrong side of the bed, or you drove around the parking lot for 15 minutes trying to find a place to park. Oh, I hate that. Or it was, and you drove around, and then it was raining. If it wasn't bad enough, you know. I, I, I want you to, I want you to come with a mind to look for God, to settle your gaze on Jesus, and and maybe that day you're 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 just so committed to your bitterness that you have to look for a long time. But I doubt you'll look for very long until you find something of his character that moves your heart to delight in him. Something that reminds you of how good he's been to you. Of the grace and the compassion that he's shown you. Of his steadfast faithfulness through the years in your life. When no one else was there, God is there. And I hope that as you delight in that, you'll begin to think of ways that you can express your gladness in God that you'll open up and sing loudly to God, that you'll find yourself swept up in the Spirit, encountering God. Worship is not always this great big emotional experience. I think we've corrupted notions of worship so much in our culture. Often it's not this mountaintop happy feeling. A lot of times it's quite the opposite. It's woe is me, I'm undone. It's Habakkuk saying, my bones are, are, are rotten within me. I can barely hold myself up. It's, it's John in the spirit on the Lord day, struck with fear, who, who, who bows in fear before the angel of the Lord. It's, it, it, there are a variety of ways that we might express ourselves depending on where we came from or what's happening in our life. But when you behold the glory of God, you respond to that glory with delight at who he is. Your expression will be what Jesus intends when he says to the woman at the well in John 4 that the Father is looking for some people who worship him in spirit and in truth. So open up wide this week and sing with all of your heart. In fact, tonight, in your devotional time, look for Jesus and let your heart be moved before you click the box to check off the to-do list, make sure that you're careful to worship him while you're there. Through the day tomorrow, walk worthy of your calling and reflect on the goodness of God to you, how he's provided for you in so many different ways. In every setting, there is occasion to worship him. Be careful that you do. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord.